So do you see how when we understand that revelation is for all generations and that it has universal truths, then it's a big benefit for us. A book for all generations as we continue our series titled Revelation Made Relevant. Hello and welcome to the Transforming Lives Together podcast. Many of us are privileged to own multiple copies of the Bible, especially through our favorite Bible app. The internet grants us access to a wide range of resources and online study guides, videos, and podcasts like this one. With so many resources at our fingertips, we can fall into the trap of thinking that we can study and understand the Bible all on our own without the church. If this were the case, then the apostles would have written a lot more letters to individual believers instead of churches. But they didn't. Even the revelation God gave to John was meant for the seven churches, and, as Father Ward points out, were meant to be read out loud in those churches. So, while personal study is important, the church provides for us a buffer against heresy and a wealth of wisdom and insight into the scriptures. Before we turn it over to Father Ward, we want to say thank you for your time as you tune in each week. We pray you are blessed and encouraged by the content of this podcast. Please don't forget to subscribe to stay up to date with the latest episodes. And if you have enjoyed what you're hearing from this podcast, please help us out by leaving a five-star rating and review. Your positive feedback will help us reach more people with this podcast. And now, here is Father Ward with part 2.1 of Revelation Made Relevant. If you were here not uh, last week, if you could just raise your hand, if you were not here last week, just raise them nice and high. Oh, wow, there's a good number of you um, that were not here last week. Okay, then what I'm going to do is uh, just make sure you get a copy of the notes, if you didn't on Sunday, of our first study. What we will do is I will do a review uh, from last week, because it's important, especially with Revelation, everything kind of builds on itself. Revelation actually is meant to be understood as a complete whole. And the challenge of Revelation is that what it provides us are pieces of an incredible mosaic, a puzzle that has so many facets to it that helps us understand what God has done, what He is doing, and what He will do. Revelation is not just for the future. It's as much about the past as it is about the present as it is about the future. I think that's a good way to understand Revelation. So important uh, for the faith. But before I go any further, I'd like to open us up with prayer. The Lord be with you. you. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you and praise you for this wonderful opportunity to study the book of Revelation. And we know, Lord, that Revelation is ultimately about Jesus Christ about who He is, about what He has done, and about how He is coming back 
to judge the living and the dead and to not only destroy evil, but to create a new heavens and a new earth. Father, we know we have work to do and that you command us to read, to understand and to obey the words of Revelation. So we pray, Lord, that as we engage in this study, you through your Holy Spirit would continue to work in us your perfect will that we might gain in our understanding of Revelation and put it to practice in our daily lives. We thank you and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so, last week we uh, began looking at the, asking the question, why? Why Revelation? And really when you uh, talk about Revelation, it's important to note that Revelation, first and foremost, the uh, first five words of Revelation are as follows. The Revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the title. And so this is not simply a work of John, even though the author, according to uh, church tradition, and when we talk about church tradition, we're talking about well-documented tradition of uh, various church fathers who lived in the second century, who had various writings, who in their writings said it was John the Apostle who transmitted the book of Revelation. Now there are those who argue and think that, well, it could have been another John, and maybe it, it was because John doesn't identify himself as the apostle. But we also talked about that concerning that, or considering that Revelation is the revelation of Jesus Christ, and that John is identified as a servant of the Lord, and we are all identified as servants of the Lord. It would stand a reason why he would not appeal to his apostleship, because what he is conveying to us was directly given to him by God. That's one reason why we study Revelation. It was directly from God. It's part of the scriptures as a result, and it was revered by the early church. And so early tradition has it that John the beloved apostle was the author, the same one who wrote John and the three letters of John. Now, he was exiled on the island of Patmos. In fact, Eusebius, a third century church historian, from which we get a lot of detail about the growth and the workings of the early church after the time of the apostles, writes that John, the apostle, was exiled, was put on the island of Patmos, which is off Turkey, just about 25 miles, I think it is, off the coast of Turkey. And he was exiled there by the emperor Domitian, who was an autocratic Roman emperor who reigned for a, a period of about 20, I'm sorry, about 15 years. And uh, Patmos was a place where many exiles, people who the empire felt was a threat, were put on. And if you go there today, it's still very uh, remote. It's still very um, rustic. There's a uh, monastery built by the Crusaders, uh, I should say a fortress built by the Crusaders, and, and a, um, I think it's a monastery that's like a, a, a fortress as well, uh, on the place where uh, John received his visions. The audience, the visions that the Apostle John had were there while he was on the island, and it was first sent to the seven churches on Asia Minor. We'll look at uh, Asia Minor in a minute. 
It's the western part of modern-day Turkey. And it was meant to be a circular letter. That is, it was first sent to Ephesus, and you'll see in a couple weeks when we, looked at the ver- when we look at the various churches, the seven churches, Ephesus was the first church it was sent to, or the church in Ephesus, and then it made its rounds. Its use spread throughout the Roman Empire until it was universally recognized as God's Word. Now, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 18 as we'll see the importance that Asia Minor played in the spread of the gospel. If you need a copy of tonight's notes, please raise your hand and we will get them to you, if you haven't already. But Acts chapter uh, 18, and for those who did not bring your Bible, you can turn to page 1111. I'll begin reading in verse 24. Page 1111, Acts chapter 18, verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, an Alexandrian by birth, that means he was from Alexandria of Egypt, an eloquent man came to Ephesus, probably the headquarters for John. The seven churches, as we'll see in a moment, were most likely churches that John oversaw. And he was mighty in the scriptures. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus. Ah, that should remind us that you can teach the things of Jesus inaccurately. Indeed, in our church today, in some churches today, What is taught about Jesus is not only inaccurate, if it is inaccurate, it means it's wrong. (coughs) Being acquainted only with the baptism of John. And he began to speak out boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So, he, uh, so I guess one could still be, have a good heart and still be doing some good, but sometimes we even need to be improved and we need to be open to that correction. So anyhow, these two leading wi- women helped him understand the Scriptures more accurately. Verse 27, When he wanted to go across to Achaia, the brethren encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he had arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. And he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, demonstrating by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Now, how would he be doing that? He wasn't demonstrating by the New Testament, the Gospels. He was demonstrating by the Old, our Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, that Jesus is the Christ. You see, Jesus is written throughout There is testified throughout from Genesis all the way through Revelation. Hence, we talked about how it's so significant that the title of Revelation, the first five words, are the revelation of Jesus Christ, because ultimately this book, the Bible, is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Verse 1 of 19, It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. He said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized 
with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. There were in all about 12 men. Verse 8, And he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some of them were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way, the way was what was Christians were called, based on Jesus' words, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So people who were following Jesus were called followers of the way. He withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. This, here's the key, verse 10, this took place for two years so that all who lived in Asia, not the continent Asia, but Asia Minor, of which the seven churches are a part. So all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. You see, that's how it spread. It was during this time that the gospel spread. And as a result, churches sprouted up all through Asia Minor. And we're going to see why this is so strategic and so important. Let's now look at the map. Okay, so here's Asia Minor. So we just heard that after a ministry, here's Ephesus. So that's the place we were talking about. Okay? Patmos is here, the island of Patmos, where John was exiled to. So his revelation was received here. It was written down and then first given to Ephesus and then to Smyrna, to Pergamum. There was a, it was a highway that went like this, all the way through, all the way to Laodicea, the last church. So there are your seven churches. But of course, these weren't the only churches. There was a church in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra and Derbe and Tarsus, all over the place. They were all over. Now you're going to see why this is so strategic, that the gospel, all right, down here is Jerusalem. It was first in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, right? Spread to Syria, spread into Egypt, but then it took off right through here, and then into Greece, and then to Rome. And you're going to see... Next map. There you go. Okay, now, here's Ephesus again. Where? Right there. You see it? Okay. Right here. There's Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, where the gospel had spread. And so from there, it was able to penetrate and spread throughout the entire, even into Britain, the first century. The Celtic church was there before the Roman Catholics got there. We were already there because missionary was sent uh, in the latter part the middle to latter part of the first century. And so anyhow, the gospel spread, and so the um, revelation would have been circulated through this area and eventually would have spread throughout, the word of the Lord would have spread throughout uh, the empire. And so the audience, um, its message was uh, to give hope to first century Christians who were or would be going through persecution. During the mission's reign, there was a severe uh, persecution of Christians. Now, why do governments persecute Christians? Because they feel threatened by them. Why do you think China? The church has exploded in China. And what are they doing now? They, there has been a campaign the last couple years of removing crosses off all Christian buildings. Just take the cross down. Because the government's concerned because the church is growing so much. The same thing 
in the Roman Empire. There was concern because the church was penetrating all areas of society. In fact, uh, Pliny, uh, one of uh, a Roman uh, writer, wrote to the Emperor Trajan, who was Emperor uh, Domitian, was ended, ended up being uh, assassinated by the uh, members of his Praetorian Guard in uh, 96 AD. John was most likely exiled to Patmos in 95, just before Domitian's assassination. And then the Emperor Nerva took over. He only lasted about 15 months, but what he did was he actually uh, was not as autocratic. You know, that's what happens too when you look at history. The pendulum swings. Okay, the reason why we have what's going on in our country, one of the reasons why we have what's going on in terms of our election is because our, pres our current president is a weak leader. And because of that, the weaknesses are always accentuated, and so now people are wanting to go to the other extreme. They want, to, they want a strong leader, okay? So after Domitian, after his reign, we have this new Roman emperor, Nerva, who actually, according to Eusebius, the church historian, remember I said of the third century, had John released from his exile in Patmos. And his was a, um, a less, it was a more uh, moderate reign. But he didn't last too long. He died of natural causes. And Trajan, a Roman general, whom Nerva had adopted as a son politically, ended up taking control. And so Pliny writes to Trajan and he says these words. He says, The people are forsaking the temples of the gods. So why would people be forsaking Roman religion? the various gods and goddesses and different forms of religion that were part of the Roman Empire, going back to the time of Greece. They were forsaking these temples. They were turning away from them to Christ, to the way, the truth, and the life. And so Revelation was a message to give hope to first century Christians who were or would be going through persecution but ultimately, its purpose was to give hope and insight to believers for all ages of the future plan of salvation for our world and the unseen spiritual realities that pervade our natural world. You see, one of the reasons why God gave John visions, there's a few reasons, but I'll give you a couple, all right, is that what God is trying to convey is that there is a real world that's actually realer than the world that we can see. And so these visions are simply symbols of something that's more real. They represent various aspects of God, His nature, of, of history, of life, of the future. So what they do is they remind us to say, hey, you know what? There's more to life than what simply meets the eye. There's more to revelation than simply visions. What's important is to get behind what they actually mean. Now you say, well, wait a minute. Why didn't God just put it all point blank? This is what this means. This is what that means. This is exactly what's going to happen. Well, 
there's a number of reasons why he did it that way, but I'm going to tell you one reason, because that's not the life of faith. Think about it for a moment. What if God said to you, okay, um, Jim, I'll use Jim as an example. Jim, okay, you're uh, X amount of years. All right, do you want to know how many years you have left? And I'm going to tell you exactly how every month, in fact, I want to tell you how every day is going to go for the rest of your life. Do you want to know that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. All right. Would you want to know that? No, right? I mean, if you knew your future exactly, why would there be a need for faith? Because two things would happen. A, oh, everything is already laid out for me, so I, I don't need to trust anything. I'm just going to kind of coast, just coast along. Or maybe things aren't so good. Maybe there's a storm coming up. And you're like, oh, no, man. Oh, man. How can I really enjoy life if I know two years from now X is going to happen to me, right? Yeah. And so that's the same thing with the visions in Revelation. They're given to highlight that there's more to what we can see, but also as a test of faith. Are we going to seek after and try to find the meaning? It's no different than why Jesus taught in parables. Jesus taught in parables to give an earthly story, right, that had a spiritual meaning. But if you really wanted to know to find out the spiritual meaning, you had to spend time with Jesus. In order to understand Revelation, you have to spend time. That's why you're here tonight. And the more you know on Scripture, the more you can understand Revelation. A principle of interpretation to understand it, uh, Scripture more accurately is to remember this principle, which I think I mentioned last week, and that is Scripture interprets Scripture. We understand the symbolism of Revelation by knowing what God has already revealed prior to it. Revelation is the culmination. In order to truly understand Revelation, we need to understand the first 65 books of the Bible. You say, wait a minute, Father Ward, I don't know all the 65 books of the Bible. That's why we're here tonight together, right? Because <laughs> I do this for a living. I spend the time and I can highlight some things that maybe you would miss only because you don't have the time to spend on it. Let's keep going. And certainly our politicians are oblivious, just a case in point. I, 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 had to, I had to laugh, right? I was watching the news, right? And you know how they have the bulletins underneath? And oftentimes I don't, but then something catches my eye. And as it's going by, I see Book of Revelations. And I'm like, oh, wait a minute, what's this? So I rewind it. Thank God for DVR, right? So I rewind it. And then I see that it was Al Gore. He was speaking at um, one of Hillary Clinton's rallies. And he said, the uh, weather in Florida seriously is a reminder, th uh, is, is, how did he put it? He said, it's, it's seriously straight out of the book of Revelations. <laughs> First of all, I hope he didn't say Revelations. There's no such animal. Everyone likes to say Revelations. <laughs> there is no Revelations. It's the book of Revelation." And remember, it starts out that way. It doesn't say the revelations of Jesus Christ. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ because it reminds us that there aren't just many different revelations that kind of compete with one another. No, there's one whole, unified, coherent, revelation. consistent revelation. Amen. And on top of that, seriously, the weather in Florida is right out of the book of Revelation? 
Wow. If you think the weather is bad now, that tells me that he has not read the book of Revelation. Or he is simply using it as a political ploy or both. Right? Right? Just like Donald Trump saying two, two Corinthians. Remember? Second Corinthians, not two Corinthians. He, he mentioned that at Liberty University and Christians all over were like, you've got to be kidding. This guy doesn't know his Bible because he said my favorite verse is from two Corinthians. I forgot what he quoted. Anyhow, okay. All right, so the content suggests it was written during the time of persecution. There's two possible periods. This, again, is review. Emperor Nero, uh, most, uh, some like to say Nero, but because, again, it's that position that it all happened in the first century. If you believe it all happened in the first century, you almost have to make it Nero. And also, his Roman name does um, go out to figure 666. And we'll talk about it once we get to that point in Revelation. But uh, church, uh, the church fathers, the church historian Eusebius, all said it was during Domitian. So that's what I would say. And going back here to uh, 81 to 96. Oh, not bad, 15 years. See, he reigned for about 15 years uh, in Rome. Okay, the purpose. Uh, it first served to encourage and challenge believers living in Asia Minor during a time of persecution. The church not only faced persecution, but false teachers, temptations of morality, idolatry, and spiritual complacency, both within the church and society. As I mentioned last week, we're here. It's nothing's changed. Same issues, same problems. And as, as a result, it eventually became accepted as God's word for the church in all ages. It's meant to instruct, guide, comfort, reassure us in our spiritual journey, and point the world to the coming day of the Lord and return of the King. We're going to see tonight, as we continue in Revelation, that that theme, the, the, one of the most prevalent themes in the book of Revelation is the coming of Jesus Christ, that he is, yes, coming back to earth. An outline, the number seven is used actually 54 times. We find the number seven in Revelation. But you'll see how it's developed. The seven messages to the seven churches, seven seals, trumpets, symbolic histories, bowls, messages of judgment, and seven visions. So we'll obviously... Uh, what's kind of neat, too, is you know our first segment, our first... Um, Section for studying Revelation is seven weeks. Just happened that way. I started the first Friday in October. We're ending the Friday before Thanksgiving. We're taking a break during December because of the holidays. So we start with seven. So I think that's, that's kind of appropriate. All right, let's keep going here. Therefore, the book of Revelation, not just a book of prophecy, but a book of worship, discipleship, evangelism. We're going to see all this. Salvation, judgment, history, hope, but ultimately it is the book of Jesus Christ. Now, real quick, there are four interpretive views of Revelation. I know some of you were here last week, many of you were, but this probably you could use a review to grasp it. Preterist is everything was done in the first century. Some say, well, most of it was first century, but the tail end is in the future. All right, so those are the folks who look to the Emperor Nero as the fulfillment of the prophecy of the Antichrist. All right, so look at it as like a newspaper. And even some believe that Jesus, the return of Jesus that's described was actually in A.D. 70, that it was a spiritual return. Again, there's a danger when we take things and make them too much of a metaphor. But and anyhow, that's what you... History, they basically look at Revelation as a template for all of history. That is, it, it begins in the first century with those seven churches, but then it continues throughout history. And so the whore of Babylon would be the Vatican. Uh, folks who follow this position would be like 
John Calvin, Martin Luther, the Reformers. The Lutheran Church, it's big in the Lutheran Church uh, since Martin Luther was big on this. The Futurist, Think Future, uh, it's mainly uh, everything after chapter 3 is basically dealing with the tribulation period right before, during the tribulation period, and then, of course, the coming of Christ. That's the Futurist. Uh, those who believe in the pre-tribulation uh, pre rapture, and we'll talk more about this, believe the rapture occurs before chapter 4 because from chapter 4 on, the church, the term church is never mentioned. But we'll see the pros and cons of that in a few weeks. Actually, not in a few weeks, probably not until January. But anyhow, Revelation is a prophecy that describes the end of time and the years leading immediately to the end, which I just said, tribulation period. And sometimes um, some futurists understand the seven churches to be... Uh, representative of errors in church history, just as the historicists would do, right? You got seven churches, each is a period of time. Now, there's a problem with that, from my vantage point. And that is, if we're always to expect the imminent return of Jesus Christ in our generation, what do you do with that? You say, well, we're in the first period of the church, but we still got six more church periods to go through. You see, do you follow? And also scholars have found it's kind of difficult to take each church and really try to figure out where in history each church represents because it doesn't fit that perfectly. But that's an approach some people take on that aspect of Revelation. The idealists just look at it as one big play, one big drama. Uh, they're all symbols, nothing really real except that they do represent the struggle between the kingdom of God and the powers of evil. Um, it's an allegory for all times and places. Now, here's my take. I believe uh, in the futurist position. I do believe the idealist has some commending to it in the sense that there are certain principles, there are certain universal things in every age. There's an antichrist in every age, right? There are uh, certain characteristics of the churches, of all seven churches that are true for our church today. Do you see what I'm saying? So that would be where I would, I would go and say, yeah, there's some truth to the idealist. The historicist, there's possible that you can see some of these things happen in history, but it's a little tougher. And then the, the preterist, yeah, some of these things you will see have imagery for the first century. Remember, it was written to first century people. So a lot of the symbolism that's used, they would be familiar. And you're going to see that some of the symbolism of, is used is related to the Romans and the Roman Empire and Rome itself. So again, it all plays into it. And that's why a lot of people take uh, a kind of a, uh, a little bit of all of them uh, in terms of the view that you could see. But, but again, I think that the emphasis, especially in light of what Jesus taught on the Mount of Olives, the emphasis should be on the, um, towards the, the end. Okay, just quick review. The revelation of Jesus Christ, there you go. Most important statement, in my opinion, in the entire Bible, because it's all about him, which God gave him to show his bondservants, which must shortly take place. All right, so it's coming from God the Father, going to Jesus the Son, to show the bondservants. And he sent and communicated by his angel. And remember I said that the angel was there to make sure John gets it right. And to finally to bond, his bondservant John, who testifies to everything he saw. He's testifying like in a court of law. This is an eyewitness uh, experience that he's having. He did not put this together. This comes directly from God. That's why this is so important. Who testifies everything he saw. That is the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ. Now we broke that all down and so that's why you need to get the notes from last week. I don't have time to break it all down again. But the point is that it ultimately comes from God through Jesus Christ, through the angel, to John, and then 
to us. Now, I said towards the end last week, if you were here, I said that John the Apostle was steeped in the Hebrew Scriptures. Now, what's amazing is Revelation has uh, allusions. I forgot how many I said. I think it was 400 and some allusions to the Old Testament. And I said, well, that was because he was a disciple of John the Baptist and he was steeped in the Hebrew Scriptures. But wait a minute. I said, wait, 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 wait. I fall into that trap that so many people say, well, John was putting this together and he really was able to link everything. The reason why it's all linked that way is because it comes from God himself. Now, John would understand what it meant because he knew the Scriptures. Remember I said Scripture interprets Scripture. We can understand the more Scripture we know. But the fact of the matter is, all of these visions are coming directly from God. Now where John put, plays into it is how he's taking those visions and putting them on, onto paper. Putting them into words. And that's tough. And that's why it's a little hard to understand. He's doing the best he can. But, but we've got to remember, oh, wait a minute. Oh, the angel was right there. I'm sure the angel would say, oh, yeah, you've got to get this way. Okay, and then three, blessed is he who reads. That's a reference to the person who reads in the middle of the congregation, right? He who reads and those who hear. That's everybody hearing. It would be a scroll and it would be read and oftentimes it would be read in one sitting. People didn't have their little iPhones. They didn't have video games. They didn't have television. All they had was the spoken word, the written word, some drama, right? They had plays and stuff like that, theater, live theater. But everything was live. And they had, you know, the time in a sense. I mean, uh, uh, they worked and stuff, but you know what I'm saying. Okay, so, uh, blessed is he who reads and those who hear. That's usually where we stop. But we fail right here, most important, and heed the things which are written in it for the time is near. Obedience. It's not enough just to read it, not enough to hear it, but it's to obey it. And if you're going to obey it, that means you need to understand it. And so if God expects you to obey it, then he says, oh, you can't understand it, by the way. So these Christians will say, oh, I just can't understand Revelation. And they just let it on the shelf, be on the shelf. You're missing out. So that's the review. What I did in 30 minutes? I don't know, maybe too long, but uh, I wanted to bring everybody up to speed. Yes, 30 minutes. Okay, so any questions about the intro about the first few verses, yes. I'm confused when you say that this came directly from God, but how is that different from when we talk about all, all Scripture is God-breathed? Oh, that's a great question. That's a great question. Okay, the question was, for those who are going to be getting the recording, we know that it comes directly from God. That's what it states. How is that different from the other scriptures, because we do believe that all scripture is inspired from God, and it does come from God. There is a big difference, because Paul, when he wrote the letters, he is writing, he's addressing things as he is, as the Spirit is kind of helping him, giving interpretation, and, and he's coming at it that way. The Gospels are retelling of what Jesus did and what he said. So, there are, for example, in the Gospels, the same accounts, but there are differences in those accounts because John Mark is getting it from one angle. Matthew is looking at it from another angle, same truth, but looking at different angles. Not this. This is an actual vision that he writes down. So do you see the difference where it's, it's direct? Not that the others aren't also from God, but they're not direct. 
with the exception of Daniel. Daniel saw visions, same thing. Ezekiel, Zechariah, many of the prophets. So when you have a vision from the Lord, you're getting it direct from the Lord. So that's how I would answer that question in terms of the difference. But they're all inspired. Any other questions or comments? Yes, Mike. That's a great question, a great statement. Okay, this is how you would look at it. The interpretive approaches are exactly that, approaches, but they don't negate the core truths that are evident throughout Revelation. So, for example, when I say that Revelation is a book of prophecy, but it's more than just a book of prophecy, it's a book of evangelism, it's a book of discipleship, it's a book of judgment, it's a book of salvation, it's a book of hope, all right? That means there's a lot you can understand about Revelation and you can put into practice. And moreover, those folks, if they were students of the word, as we're going to find out, will be able to understand what the symbols actually mean. Where the uh, interpretations rub is the timing. That's where it is. It's the timing and, and the um, order and how it's actually going to flesh itself out. And ultimately, that's not really what's most important because every generation of believers should be putting this into practice. And if it was only for the final generation and for those who are right in the actual vicinity of Christ's return and knew that, then what's the purpose? So do you see how when we understand that revelation is for all generations and that it has universal truths, then it's a big benefit for us. And again, as we go through it, we're going to see how it is understandable and how we put it into practice. Does that answer your question? Uh, to some extent, if there are universal truths, mm -hmm. Ah, you raise another very important point. We were not created, but this comes out of our American spirit, the frontier individualistic spirit. We were not created to go at Scripture simply by ourselves. Now, I know the Roman Catholic Church took it to the other extreme. You can't go to Scripture unless you have the help of the church and the priest. The Protestants took it to the other extreme. You don't need anybody. It's just you and God. And the American spirit of saying that we can do it on our own, we don't need a king, penetrated the thinking. So that's why you have millions of Christians today who think they can 
walk with the Lord 100% and not be part of the body of Christ. That's a lie. Scripture is very clean, uh, clear. So, when a case of revelation, God's going to give us something to say, hey, you know what? You're going to need help on this one. <laughs> the whole body of Christ. Okay? So, again, that's how I'd answer that question. Good question, though. Yes? Exactly. So we do this as a body of Christ, not as lone rangers. Good questions. Any other questions or comments? Yes, hey, Gino. All right. Now, I understand that, but you're talking about well over 2,000 years. Yes. Right. No, that's a great question. No, no. And I'll tell you why. There are students of the ancient languages and a lot of study and a lot of research has gone into the study of languages so that we can get to the actual meaning. Because when you understand the meaning of the word, you understand by how often it's used in what context it is used, and how is it related to the rest of the words in the language. That's how you, you, you find meaning. So we've got 2,000 years of research and study that, and not only that, we've got thousands of manuscripts that we can compare and contrast so that what we have in the English is very close to the original. Having said that, it doesn't hurt to also know the Greek words so, for example, I brought out some of the Greek words last week because there are different nuances that a Greek word would have that it might not be in an English word. The most easiest example for that would be love. The English, we only have one word in the English language for love. And love can mean unconditional love in the English language, but it can also mean selfish love in the English language. In the Greek language, you had four different words for love. Each had a different emphasis. So getting back to your original question, in terms of the meaning, no. No, things, have not, uh, things are consistent. Now where it might be a little different is that some of the symbolism that's used, a first century person would automatically know what it is. You and I would not know what it represents. That's where doing your research and understanding the times, what symbols were used during that time, what were the symbols in the scriptures? But the good news for us is that so much of the symbolism in Revelation has already been used in the Hebrew scriptures that that gives us a firm foundation for understanding Revelation. We also need to understand too that God doesn't expect us to need to know every little jot and tittle of every little meaning but it's a reminder of the big things we need to be concerned about as believers and to understand why things are happening the way they are in our world, in life, individually, and in the sphere of influence we're part of, but also collectively as the world itself. Because what Revelation reminds us is that history, time, this world is all moving toward a culmination, to a finality. And that finality is they're all coming to Christ. You heard me say, the world's coming to Jesus, whether it likes it or not. 
Eventually, everyone's going to come to Jesus. So um, that's how I would answer that question. Great question. I don't know if I repeated it or not, but I did not repeat it. What was the question, Gino? Say it nice and loud. <laughs> do the uh, meanings change? How do we know the meanings with 2,000 years ago of separation? Well, that's why you're here. You take little steps, right? And I don't know if you were here at the beginning when I said it's like a puzzle. Revelation gives us all these different pieces of one coherent puzzle. But if you've ever put a puzzle together, the pieces, some of them look really nice, some of them don't look so nice. But when they're all interconnected, wow, you got something there. And that takes time. And, and remember, I said part of it is a test of our faith. Are we, gonna, are we willing to invest to find out what this means? Any other questions? Okay, well, let's take a... Well, wait a minute. Let's, let's see what time it is. Oh, no, we got, we got about five minutes before we'll take a break. Okay, let's get right into uh, tonight. All right, so Revelation 4 through 8. We're going to be looking at simply those five verses what those five verses are. The uh, first three verses were a prologue, letting us know the subject matter. It's about Jesus. It's from Jesus. It comes from God, through Christ, through his angel, to John, for all of us, for all time. We can all understand that, right? It's important. We're blessed when we read it. We're blessed when we hear it, study it, but ultimately, if we obey it. And do you remember last week I said, what's interesting is in Revelation 22, 7, Jesus then says, blessed is he who heeds the words of this prophecy. He doesn't even mention hear or read because he's saying that by Revelation 22, everyone should understand exactly what's going on and be obedient and following him. So now we come to a greeting. It comes from John. John says, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. We've already talked about the seven churches, but why seven Seven is the number of completion in the Bible. And so the reason why there are seven churches in Revelation, there are two reasons why. Two possible reasons. Either one of them are correct or both of them are correct. Here's some interpretation for you. Seven is the number of completion, right? The seven could actually refer to exactly seven churches that were under John's care. Or, because seven is the number of completion... They're meant for all churches for all time. It, it's another way of saying it's to the universal church. It's for the entire church in the Roman Empire, and it's for the entire church for all of history. Hence, seven, the number of completion. John to the seven churches that are in Asia. Grace to you and peace. Now what's neat about this is this greeting is a typical greeting that was used by the Apostle Paul when he wrote his epistles. That's why it's called an epistolary greeting. <coughs> Peter used the same greeting in his epistle. And what it does is it highlights the two fundamental aspects of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That it first is a reflection of God's grace and his mercy, because mercy is a form of grace that Jesus brings to the world. So grace, that grace comes from Christ, continuity of the revelation of Christ. And as a result of God's grace in Christ, what is that result as the result of it? Peace. Right? 
Once you've been touched by the grace of God, once you know your sins are forgiven, once you've been given new life, then you're going to have peace. Because you're going to have peace with God. That will give you an internal peace. And then you're going to have peace with those around you as far as it depends upon you, as Paul writes in Romans, be at peace with all men. We hopefully, all of us here in this church, are at peace with one another. It's bad when churches get clicky and people don't want to talk to one another and people get offended at one another and they don't work it out. Not good. That doesn't reflect the gospel, does it? And so John shows us too here why this is not a typical, a typical apocalyptic writing uh, that the Jews were accustomed to during the intertestamental period, the writings that never became scripture or were never considered inspired, but talked about these these visions of God setting things right, uh, but they didn't have anything to do, do with grace or peace. So John says, grace to you and peace. Now, where does this grace and peace come from? It doesn't just come from Jesus. It comes from the Trinity. And then we start with the Father. From Him who is and who was and who is to come. So, that statement, which we will see, is found several times uh, in Revelation, and it is reference to the Father, but it's also reference to the Son. That's what the amazing thing about it. The deity of Christ is highlighted in Revelation, just as, almost as much as it is in the Gospel of John. But here we have from Him who is and who was and who is to come, that statement is the fact that God just is. It reminds us of the words that God said to Moses when Moses asked the Lord to tell him what he should tell the people when they said, who sent you to us? And out of the burning bush, he heard the voice of the Lord say, I am who I am. Tell them that I am sent you. And that very statement of I am means that God just is and that God cannot be named by man. And it's why the Jews would never pronounce the name of God. They would say God Elohim, but when it came to what we translate as Lord, it was simply four consonants, Hebrew consonants that transliterate into our Y-H-W-H. And if you put vowels to them, you have Yahweh. And so the greeting is not just from John. But it's from God, the Father, who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now this is uh, a, uh, a title that a lot of people have questions. They're always like, who, who, what are the seven spirits? Why doesn't John just say the Holy Spirit? The seven spirits actually do refer to the Holy Spirit. I'm going to give you four reasons why we know that it's a reference to the Holy Spirit. There are other reasons too, but four main reasons. But we have to understand that in Revelation, when spirit is used, it is used either referring to the Holy Spirit, when John later says, I was in the Spirit, when he gets the visions. That's a reference to the Holy Spirit. It's also uh, used in reference to evil spirits, demons. It can be used in reference to people. 
But we know that this is not a reference to angels or people because those are created beings. And within this greeting, we have the Father, we have the Spirit, and then we have the Son. God would not put a created being within the context of a greeting from the Godhead. So that's one reason. Second, seven, again, the number of completion. Perfection. And it's interesting because the seven spirits correlate to the seven churches. And it's a reminder that the Holy Spirit is involved in all seven churches. The Holy Spirit is involved in the body of Christ. Third reason, one can look at Scripture and see that there is a sevenfold manifestation of the Spirit. Turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, verses 6 through 8. Romans chapter 12, we were already in Acts, so you just got to turn to the next book. Page 1136. Actually, I already gave you two reasons. The created beings, seven, the number of completion. I think, yeah, I already did. All right, okay. All right, Romans 12, 6 through 8. This is kind of neat. Page 1136. Let's look what it says here. Paul is talking about the Holy Spirit, and he says this, Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, okay, that's number one, according to the proportion of his faith. If service, number two. Or he who teaches, number three. Or he who exhorts, number four. He who gives, number five. He who leads, number six. And he who shows mercy, number seven. Now, that's New Testament. I want you to look now and see what the Old Testament says. Now I want you to go to Isaiah chapter 11, 2, and 3, I think. 11, 2, and 3. And that is page 693. No, um, 694. Here's another sevenfold manifestation of the Spirit. 694. And it's actually how Jesus, the, the uh, shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. That's a messianic prophecy. The Jesse is David's father. The monarchy ends, but a sh it seemingly ends, but a shoot sprouts out. That's the Messiah, the eternal king, and the spirit of the Lord's going to be upon him. Remember when he was baptized, a dove fell upon Jesus, or the spirit like a dove fell upon Jesus. You can see the, how it all interrelates, but look at what it says here. The spirit, verse two, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, one. The spirit of wisdom, two, and understanding, three. The spirit of counsel, four, and strength, five. The spirit of knowledge, six, and the fear of the Lord, seven. Sevenfold manifestation of the spirit. And then the final reason why uh, this would denote the spirit is if you now go to Revelation chapter four, after we look at these two, we'll take a break. Revelation chapter 4, verse 5. Actually, we'll, we'll, we'll um, look at Revelation 3. 
Revelation 3, page 1227, for those who uh, did not bring their Bibles, if you brought your Bibles right at the end, Revelation chapter 3, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, the stars refer to the angels. Each star was a term used to refer to the angels in Scripture. So you don't have seven spirits, angels, and seven stars, angels. No, there's a difference between the two. Now let's go to chapter 4, verse 5. Out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. So the spirit is likened to fire. What came at Pentecost? Tongues of fire. Torches there represent the omnipresence of God, the omnipotence of God. In fact, we read in... 6 verse 5, next chapter. No, I'm sorry, 5 verse 6. 5 verse 6, not 6. Um, 5 verse 6 of Revelation. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Seven eyes. Not the seven horns, the seven eyes are the seven spirits of God which highlight omniscience. All-knowing and omnipresence. The eyes see everything, know everything, and are everywhere. So these are characteristics of deity. Only God is omniscient. Only God is the omnipresent. Only God is omnipotent. And so the seven spirits represent the Holy Spirit. And I gave you the four reasons. They're in your notes. You have been listening to the Transforming Lives Together podcast, a ministry of St. Bartholomew's Anglican Church in Tonawanda, New York. To learn more about our church, please visit stbartston.org. Again, that's stbartston.org. You can also connect with St. Bartholomew's on Facebook and Instagram through the handle at St. Bart's Anglican Church. And you can connect with this podcast on Facebook through at Transforming Lives Together Cast. We hope you will tune in next time as we continue our series, Revelation Made Relevant. Until then, we leave you with these verses from the letter to the Hebrews. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. God bless.